this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I I want to talk to you again about the whole idea of uh, our lives, our characters being transformed. And the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about the power of virtue, which in our culture, we take virtue, it's not a word that we use often anyway, but when we do use it, we pretty much use it as a synonym for goodness. But in uh, ancient times, virtue didn't mean simply goodness. Virtue was about the willingness to make small choices, however difficult they are initially, to make small choices again and again and again until there develops in the person who's making those choices what we might call a second order of naturalness. Sometimes we use the word second nature. You might say of a person, he or she does that just as second nature. They do it, maybe we would use the word automatically. But as we reflect on the thing that we say they do automatically or as second nature, we we recognize that's learned behavior. And actually in the beginning, it was anything but easy. It's the same kind of virtue that's involved in learning to play the piano, learning to uh, speak a second language, learning the laws of physics or logic. At the beginning, it's incredibly difficult. It seems as if we will never master it. But by virtue of small choices that we make again and again and again, this second order of naturalness begins to develop. And I've been suggesting to you that actually the development of moral character is not significantly different in terms of process. The huge point of difference for us as believers is that it's not just us. Because left to ourselves, even if we know the right choices to make, we will eventually find ourselves lost in the morass of Romans chapter 7, knowing what I want to do but being absolutely unable to do it. The difference between virtue as the ancients taught it and virtue as we see it in the scriptures is that the Holy Spirit comes to empower us so that we not only know what to do but we have the power to get there. So we have to move out of Romans 7 into Romans 8, where it's the power of the Spirit, the one that raised Jesus from the dead working in us, that enables us to make those choices again and again and again. So this isn't just about turning over a new leaf and start making good choices. This is the awareness that without the Spirit of God, we are incapable But he's now in us, and he will, as we make those choices, empower us. The New Testament language that describes this is is various. We, We read again and again Paul saying, put on the new man, or put off the old man. That language is the language of virtue. It's choice after choice. To not do some things that represent the old order that we came out of, and to do other things that represent a new order that we're being called into. Paul talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, and says, exercise yourself unto godliness. Start doing those things that would develop the moral muscle within you. 
Last week we talked about the power of worship and the transformation process. This morning I want to talk to you about integrity of heart in the process of your character being transformed. I suspect that if I asked a group of people to get together and put together a definition of integrity, they would tend to group their definition around the ideas of honesty. Excuse me. Cheers to the Highlanders, okay? (laughs) Sorry for the hurricanes. So we tend to think of integrity as telling the truth, telling the truth to people. And of course, integrity involves that. It's not less than that, but it is a good deal more than that. Integrity of heart is more primal, more interior than simply outward honesty with people. I I think outward honesty is actually the result of integrity. It's the fruit of integrity, but it's not the same thing as integrity. Integrity, when you unpack the the definition, has the idea of wholeness, of completeness, of something being pulled together. It's really about being all in, holding nothing back, hiding nothing, protecting nothing. It's an openness and a forthrightness toward God. The words integrate and disintegrate are cognate words, which means they're related words, and they give the basic idea of what integrity is about. To function in integrity in the inner man is to see things being drawn together into completeness, into wholeness. To fail to function in integrity of heart actually is to see things disintegrate and fall apart. There is so much that I could say about integrity and, and, and explore the depths of this word, but I, as I worked on this this week, there was one aspect of it that just kept coming up. There was a, a couple of scriptures that I'll read to you in just a moment that kept coming up in my thinking, and I'm going to focus on them, although there's much that could be said other than this about integrity of heart. I, I want to talk about the depths of inner honesty. Not, not outward honesty, but inner honesty. <clears throat> I'm going to need this, I think. The essential component of integrity of heart, as the Bible defines it, is an inner honesty before God. And the two scriptures I wanted to draw your attention to are both from the Psalms. The first from Psalm 15, where it says, Lord, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. And then the other one is from Psalm 51, where it says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Speaking the truth in your heart, speaking the truth in the inward parts. And as I looked at this, it struck me that this quality of speaking truth on the inside to oneself might not actually be as common as we would perhaps initially think. I I figured that and suspect that most of us would say, while we don't always speak the truth outwardly, I guess we've all been guilty of saying things outwardly that are either uh, are stretching the truth or are just plain not the truth, yet inwardly we know what the truth is. Uh, I'm not so sure that we actually are able to discern well what is truth in the inward parts. I think truth in the inward parts might be a quality that is actually very rare and in its rareness actually be incredibly precious in the sight of God. Perhaps inward truth-telling is actually the exception rather than the rule. 
as you come to the scriptures and as you search them out, I think it's actually very clear that we don't naturally gravitate to truth in the inward parts. In our fallenness and in the associated darkness, we don't, or perhaps more truthfully, we won't see things clearly. I actually think a case can be made from the scriptures that the won't leads to the don't. Okay, I, I will not very quickly becomes I cannot. And the truth is that in our fallenness, in our defensiveness, in our insecurity, we are terribly biased in our own favor. And if you're prone not to agree with me on this, ask your spouse later if she agrees or he agrees. Let me give you a couple of passages, okay? Proverbs chapter 21. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. This says something profound to me about the nature of man. I'd like to suggest to you that without the work of the Holy Spirit, it seems to me we are almost totally at the mercy of our self-deceiving tendencies. My natural bent, my natural predisposition is to excuse, to justify, and to rationalize my behavior. And to naturally, the first order of naturalness, if you like, is, is to excuse myself and to turn away from any light that might expose me. You think about the way Adam and Eve, for example, dealt with God's conviction of them regarding their own sin. They immediately began to excuse, justify, blame shift. John talks about that. He talks about the naturalness of the human heart to turn away from light. In the message translation of John 3, uh, 19, it says, this is the crisis we're in. God light streams into the world, but men and women everywhere run for darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. That's the natural state of the fallen person. We prefer darkness, or at least the twilight, and we convince ourselves that it's bright sunshine. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Actually, there's a fascinating scripture in the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, that talks about, and I think gives incredible insight into how this process of self-deception arises. It's an unusual scripture, one that we tend to flick over because most often we just don't understand it. Let me read it to you in the Amplified. It goes like this. He who willfully separates and estranges himself from God and all man seeks his own desire and pretext to break out against all wise and sound judgment. The Douay Reims translation simply says this, he that has a mind to depart from a friend seeks occasions. And there seems to be, as I looked at that scripture, an order that unfolds in the person that Proverbs describes here, the one who becomes estranged from his friend, whether that friend is God or man. Firstly, there is an inner decision. Internally, for, for whatever reason, we become willfully estranged. Now, you don't see this at a surface level. This is going on deep in the heart. Outwardly, secondly, we then seek a pretext to act on the decision that we've already made. 
Now, a pretext is to put something forward as an excuse that conceals the true purpose. It's the ostensible, the outward reason that excuses or hides the inner reason. The third thing, the end result of this process, is that there becomes a break in the friendship or the fellowship. Now, those three stages, only two are visible, the last two. There is the outward or ostensible reason for the breakup and then the breakup itself. And if you were to ask this person and say to them, what's going on? They'd say, it's simple. The pretext, the cause, the excuse rather, caused the result, the breakup. He was really unkind to me about this and as a result, this happened. And so you get the person talking about the outward effects, the pretext, the excuse, and the result. But that doesn't take account or acknowledge that oftentimes that decision was already made on the inside. It was already fate accompli before anything outwardly transpired at all. I don't know how many times over the years I've sat with a couple, for example, and, and one of the couple has cited a behavior pattern in the other, and that has become the reason for the breakdown of a relationship. As you push the boundaries, you find that a decision internally has already been made. This was already fate accompli. It was looking for an excuse that would get the intended result. You only ever hear about the visible things, but the invisible is actually the crucial thing motivating this choice. Had a different choice been made internally, then that behavior, as objectionable as it might have been, could have been worked through and the result could have been different. I've seen that again and again pastorally. A significant problem that complicates this process is often in our own hearts we don't even realize what's going on. We make our choices but we don't even know in the twilight of our brokenness and fallenness our own internal machinations, our own internal thoughts. We not only deceive other people, we deceive ourselves. In keeping with the analogy, we convince ourselves that the pretext, the excuse, is in fact the real reason, when many times it's not. Pascal, I think I mentioned him last week, the great mathematician, scientist, and passionate believer, once said this, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. Do you know that that's true of your heart? It's most certainly true of mine. I've recognized it many, many times, where I think, you know, something on the outside and in a moment of revelation I see deeper and I know that my heart has reasons that my reason knows nothing of. Now you can begin to see as I've unfolded this how inner honesty, how speaking the truth in inward parts is actually not as straightforward as or as easy as we might like to think it is. In fact I would say that without God's help it's quite beyond us quite beyond us. Thankfully, although we can deceive others easily, and perhaps with a little more effort deceive ourselves, it is quite impossible to deceive God. He sees it. He knows it. And he weighs and ponders our hearts. Literally in the Hebrew, it has the idea of balancing or leveling something out. It's the builder who puts the straight edge up against my cut. It's the builder's level up against my heart. And integrity of heart is about the willingness on my part 
to hear the builder's assessment of what's actually going on in my heart. It's as he puts the measure up against what's going on in my heart, it's my willingness to listen and say, hmm, I didn't see that. I didn't think about that. I think you're right. And that's unbelievably rare. That's why the Bible talks about it as being so precious. He shines light into those interior places where we have either cultivated darkness or are at least happy to live in the twilight and in the disintegration. Integrity of heart is learning to respond with inner honesty to the revelations that he shows us of our own hearts. There's a passage in Luke chapter 11 most of us are very familiar with it. It's, it's the passage where it talks about, you know, we, we would say, let your little light shine. Only that's not what's happening here in Luke. In Matthew, where it talks about putting your light on a can, uh, uh, you know, in a place where it can really shine, it is about letting your little light shine, and that's where the song comes from. But in Luke chapter 11, though it uses similar language, it's not talking about letting your light shine before others. It's talking about letting the light of God shine in your heart. Let me read it to you from the Amplified Translation. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in the cellar or crypt under a bushel me- or under a bushel measure, but on a lampstand, that those who are coming in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye, your conscience, is sound and fulfilling its office, your whole body is full of light. But when it's not sound and is not fulfilling its office, your body is full of darkness. Be careful, therefore, that the light that is in you is not darkness. This isn't talking about your light before men. This is talking about God's light in your internal places. The King James says, when your eye is single, let your eye be single. The Greek word for single is the word haplous, and it comes from a word which means don't be complicated, don't let things get confused. Um, it literally means without folds. Okay. Now, now that is an allusion to the marketplace. Most of us wouldn't probably get this, but in that day, at that time, when you wanted to buy things, you didn't go to a supermarket, you went down into the marketplaces with all of the stores. And for those of you who have traveled in the third world, you know it's still like this. You go down and there's the marketplace going on. And if you wanted to buy some cloth, you would go to the cloth merchant and he would quickly show you a bolt of cloth and you'd look at it. And uh, if, the, if the merchant was somewhat of a dishonest man and he had a portion of cloth that had a flaw in it, just by quick movements and sleight of hands he could show you the cloth and he would hide the flaw in the folds. You wouldn't even see it unless you said, stretch it out and let me see. So he cuts off the cloth, you take it home, you open it out, and it's flawed right through the middle of it. I had an experience like this. I was in Nepal, and I wanted to buy Karen a pashmina. So I went down to the marketplace, and there they all were. It was difficult to put them out because they were all in cellophane. So I'm looking at them, and I think, that one looks okay. When I got it home, and when Karen opened it out, we took the cellophane off, opened it up, and there's a flaw right through it. It was unusable. And so the guy gets my money. I don't have a pashmina to give her because it's useless. The scripture is saying, don't do that. Don't let your eye be like that with regard God's light shining on you. Let your eye be single. Let it be uncomplicated, without confusion, folded right out. 
Now, I find the Amplified Translation really good because, you know, I could read that in the King James, say, don't let your eye be folded. And I think, okay, well, you know, honestly, what does that mean practically for me? But the Amplified Bible brings it out. It says, your eye is your conscience. Don't let your conscience fold things over like that. Don't let your conscience allow you to walk in darkness. I want to explore that just for a few minutes with you this morning. Because I think in order to be a transformed people, in order to be a people that are walking in integrity of heart, we have to be a people who actually start to cultivate the conscience faculty within us. Let, let me show you some things scripturally. First of all, we all know what conscience is. It isn't Jiminy Cricket sitting on Pinocchio's shoulder. It is the internal monitor put there by creative design as part of what it means to be made in the image of God that allows us to discern right from wrong. It's in every single person according to the scriptures. Romans chapter 2 verse 15, the message translation says it this way, God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within us or within them that echoes God's yes and no right and wrong. Now we all understand that faculty. That faculty, like all of the others within us, has been significantly damaged by the fall. Although it's still there, it doesn't function in the way that it's supposed to function. It functions something like a, an engine on a very cold and frosty morning where it will splutter into life and then die and then splutter and kick into life and then die again. It doesn't point true north any longer. A person outside of relationship with Jesus can make incredibly selfish and rebellious choices, ultimately pursuing their own desires to such a degree that that conscience can almost be non-functioning. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, disobedience to the conscience makes it blind, makes the conscience blind. Titus chapter 1 verse 15 talks about the fact that to the pure in heart and conscience, all things are pure, but to the defiled and corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences become defiled and polluted. So your conscience can, can become defiled and polluted by virtue of a willful direction of behavior. You, you continue in that, and Titus uh, Timothy talks about the fact that your conscience can be just cauterized. It can be seared in 1 Timothy 4.2. The insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That means they are burnt out so that they no longer feel anything. This thing that is supposed to say right from wrong loses its capacity to speak to us at all. We lose that ability. The message translation says this, these liars have lived so well and for so long that they've lost their capacity for truth. Absolutely burnt out, seared over. Now, what happens is at salvation, God starts a work of integration and restoration. And one of the things that seems to occur is that he begins to take our conscience, 
This thing that is supposed to serve his purposes, that has been thrust down, broken, virtually non-functioning, or if it does function, it excuses outrageous acts and puts its hand up for silly things. It's, it's broken. But he comes and starts to reorientate it toward true north. Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus, we were singing it, the blood of Jesus purges and restores, and it does that to our conscience. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, from the things that are out of order, where the conscience doesn't put its hand up for serious things, but puts its hands up for dumb things, the dead things, he starts to purify and to change. Hebrews 10.22 says this, Let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What we find when we come to Christ and as he wants to bring us through this process of transformation is that things that we did previously without even thinking, suddenly we feel pricked in our conscience. There's something there that's now waving a flag where prior to that there was no voice and he starts to restore something now it's not perfect and it doesn't happen all at once but it starts to transpire it starts to take place and you and I if we want our eye to be unfolded have to learn what it is to respond to that and not simply thrust it down as we mature in the ways And the word of God, what you'll find is that the witness of the Holy Spirit and the witness of your conscience close ranks until they become one and the same thing. Paul in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 in the Amplified Bible says, My conscience prompted and enlightened by the Holy Spirit. That's the goal. We come to the place where we listen to that internal monitor and the Holy Spirit and our conscience closes ranks. And that starts to become the voice of God to us. Over and over again, I think probably the question that I'm asked most as a pastor over the years is, is, is how do I hear the voice of God? I don't hear the voice of God. How can I know the voice of God? And I always just say, do you, do you are aware of your conscience? Yeah, 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 but that's just me. No. As you mature in the ways and the word of God, they become one and the same thing. My, my conscience enlightened and prompted, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. Watchman Nee makes the comment that unless a believer is prepared to follow his conscience, he is completely unable to be led by the Spirit. I tend to agree. Listen to these scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. This is the way the King James reads it. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. I remember reading that one time and thought, well, of course, you reject your faith, you shipwreck. But then I read it one day in the Amplified Translation. It said this, holding fast to faith. That leaning of the entire human personality on God and absolute trust and confidence. It always takes a lot longer to read the Amplified, doesn't it? You know, it's a, it's a long read. But then it goes on and says, having a good, clear conscience. By rejecting and thrusting from them their conscience, some individuals have made a shipwreck of their faith. And it suddenly struck me, what was being talked about here was not that they rejected their faith, but they rejected their conscience, which led to a shipwreck of their faith. 
I read it in the Living New Testament. It's even more dramatic. It says this, Cling tightly to your faith in Christ and always keep your conscience clear, doing what you know is right. For some have disobeyed their consciences and have deliberately done what they know is wrong. It isn't surprising that they soon lost their faith in Christ after denying or defying God like that. How did they defy God? That's a big thing. He defied God. You think, what did he do? He didn't listen to his conscience. Cultivate. If you want to be a transformed person, cultivate that inner voice and listen to it and follow through on it. You say, well, Domo, how will I know it's right? Well, you won't always, and sometimes, quite frankly, you will be wrong, but time will change that. The openness and forthrightness of your heart, God will lead you through, through this process. Listen to that internal voice. The New Testament talks about it often. It talks about it in Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let, let that peace inside you be the arbitrator, be the umpire, literally, is the, is the idea in the Greek. And when you feel like something's been disturbed, your conscience is not happy, listen to it. He, Ephesians put the, puts it this way. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. When you feel something's gone amiss, listen to it. Respond to it. So well, it was, it's so silly. It's so small. You know, I, I don't even know if it's right. Listen, I, I was telling Karen the other day, I had an experience and just this last week. I went and did something, and I'm not going to tell you what it was. It wasn't, you know, I don't think you'd be surprised. I, I, it wasn't something wicked or, you know, unhealthy or impure. It was just something I did. And, uh, and as I'm coming out from this thing, you're all going crazy now, what was it? <laughs> I don't want to tell you or not because I, I don't want you to be offended with me, but I, no, I'm not going to bother. Uh, as I came out from this thing, there was this little thing in my heart, and it was by virtue, I, had exp I explained it away by virtue of my background my Pentecostal background, which said, oh, don't do that. But, but those of you who came from a Pentecostal background also knew, don't dance, don't go to the movies, don't listen to anything that's you know, not Christian music, and don't do this thing. And it's on about the same level, okay, if it makes you feel better. And, and uh, so I did it, and I'm walking out, and I said out loud as I'm walking to the car, I hope that's okay, Lord, and, and it was that thing I talked about the other week when I just said every now and then you check in. We okay? And it was that thing. I just had this little thing and I said, we okay about this? And that fast, the Lord spoke to me. And he just said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, I need to back up and just say, he wasn't saying that thing was sinful. He said, you aren't doing it in faith. You aren't sure about this thing. Can I ask you a question? In our relationship, why would you do something that you aren't sure about? You say, I covet your friendship and your favor. You just did something that you aren't sure how I feel about. What kind of friendship is that? Would you do that with Karen? Would you do something with Karen that you weren't sure about or would you ask first? So I'd ask first. He said, well, you're not doing it in faith. And I don't want you to do it. Until you can do it in faith and just don't. I immediately sought to justify. I said, well, and this is going to let some of you know what it was that I did. <laughs> but I said, well, at least, Lord, the money gets to go to charity. 
He just said to me, and you have no control over which charity it goes to, said, if you want to give it to charity, why don't you give it? And he gave me another scripture, quick as a wink. It was just such a remarkable way of speaking to my heart. He just said, he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord pays great interest on his loans. And I said, okay, I'll do it. If it makes you feel any better, I don't do that very often. Okay? And I, and, I, and I have really good plans about what I'll do with it when my, when my ship comes in. Oh dear, I'm going to stop for a drink. Actually, Chris, I need, something, I need something stronger. Have you got Oh no, that's as bad as that, eh? I'm unwell. Give me a break. <laughs> listen to the voice. Because what I've found is when I listen to it and don't do a snow job on it, it gets stronger. It becomes clearer. It becomes more accurate. Some of you are lost. You just can't get over the fact that I bought one of those things. <laughs> Come back. Okay. Acts chapter 24, verse 16. This is a fascinating scripture to me in the light of what we are talking about in this series. And I'm fascinated by the language because this is what Paul says. Herein do I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Exercise yourself, Paul, under God, Paul says under Timothy, under godliness. Okay, that's good. What does that mean? Well, exercise your conscience. Put moral muscle into your conscience. Let, let that voice start to get stronger and stronger. Paul is describing here the process that we are calling developing virtue. I, I encourage you, maybe sometime when you want to do a study, go through what the Bible says about conscience. I think you'll be stunned at the place that the scripture puts it in and then how often we don't talk about it. How often that is not something that we hear anything about. You listen to this and this is my last scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 and 6. Again the Amplified Bible. Whereas the object and purpose of our instruction and charge is love. Paul is saying the goal is love. Now none of us would dispute that. All of us understand 1 Corinthians 13, you know, if you've got all of these things but you haven't got love, it's nothing. So the goal is love. But then he says, this love, if you're going to have this love, there's three things. It springs from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, unfeigned faith. If love of God is our goal, then purity of heart, a good, clear conscience, and a sincere, unfeigned faith is essential. Certain individuals have missed the mark on this very matter and have wandered away into vain arguments and discussions and purposeless talk. J.B. Phillips puts it this way, the ultimate aim of Christian ministry. And by ministry, he's not talking about the role I play in the life of our community. He's talking about we're all servants, we're all ministers, we're all the people of God. The ultimate aim of Christian service, if you like, after all, is to produce the love which springs from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a genuine faith. You need to listen to your conscience. 
You need to exercise your conscience. If you want to see transformation take place, listen to that internal monitor. And when it just says, I don't feel good about that, then don't just make excuses like, like I so readily do. Listen to it. Say, okay, Lord, I can see the straight edge being put up against my heart. I can see that I have drifted away. What do I need to do to sort this? And that's how you start to learn to live in the transforming grace of God. It is impossible without, without his grace. But when his grace is moving, it, it, it isn't that you don't have to do anything. You know, we, we tend to swing to either legalism or, or a grace that doesn't require anything of us. But transformation is about us. It requires our cooperation with his grace moving in us. Without him, we cannot, but without us, he will not. And so we say, Lord, help me to be transformed. Help me to listen to that internal monitor. And even when I'm not that fussed on what it says, I, 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 I will do my best by your grace and power to respond to it. I won't cheat on my tax. I won't, you know, I won't explain that away by just saying, well, everybody does it. You know, when my kids used to say to me, and occasionally they did when they were growing up, da-da-da-da-da-da, everybody does it. I would say, you're not everybody. You aren't everybody. You're part of our family, and our family doesn't do that. And I think God would say that to us. We can't simply say everybody does that. It's acceptable in our culture. We are countercultural. We live in another culture, and when the king of our culture says that is unacceptable, I don't care what the other culture says. Quite frankly, as arrogant as this sounds, they are deluded and in darkness. This is light and life. And when he says, don't do that, then you don't do it. Doesn't matter what the culture says. I know that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to be. I think there's something about obedience that calls us to be very, very different. Is that okay? Will you forgive me for... Listen, some of you are thinking, oh my golly, I do that. The Lord did not say to me, that is evil, that is sin. He simply said to me, you're not approaching it well. Don't do it. I'm not excusing that in the sense of saying, hey, it's fine for you. You have to sort that out yourself. If you're in the grip of a gambling addiction, something's dreadfully wrong. It's a little bit like, and I'm going to get into deeper trouble here, but I'm in, so who cares? And I'm unwell, and I'll excuse myself and rationalize and justify when I'm finished. <laughs> Some people say to me, Don, you should, not, you should talk to people. Don't take alcohol. I, I can't build a case from that, from the scripture. I can't. But I can build a very, very strong case for drunkenness. Don't be drunk. The Bible says that. And I think maybe this thing is a little bit like that, but I'm way out of my depth ethically, so I'm just going to cut my... Come and help me. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.